This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the app for arts and culture. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast where I talk to artists about their influences from art to literature, music and film and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. And in this episode, it's A Brush With, Isaac Julian, whose films and video installations are often swoolingly beautiful and always deeply engaged in diverse cultural histories, reflecting on diaspora and blackness, queer identity and the movement of people, among much else. His work actively involves other art forms and is often produced from collaborations with choreographers and actors. He responds repeatedly to the art, literature and cinema of the past, but is also pushing video installation into new territory, using multiple screens, sometimes as many as nine, to create fractured narratives which envelop the viewer, encouraging distinctive readings of the complex stories he tells and constantly expanding the frames through which we see his subject matter. Isaac was born in London in 1960 and studied at the Central St Martin's Art School in the early 1980s. Upon graduating, he was part of a group of young filmmakers called the Sankofa Film and Video Collective, who were among a number of artists of colour to engage directly with the social and political issues of the time. Sankofa's aim was to develop an independent black film culture in the UK, and Isaac produced works like Territories at this time, a piece which is both a documentary and a film essay, and which appears in Tate Britain's important survey of Caribbean British art, Life Between Islands. Isaac came to real prominence in the film world with his 1989 drama documentary, Looking for Langston, a black and white film looking at the poet Langston Hughes and the Harlem Renaissance, and he followed that with the feature film Young Soul Rebels, focusing on culture in London in the year 1977. But since the 1990s, his work has increasingly appeared in the gallery rather than the movie theatre. Among his first video installations was his 1995 film Trust, which focused focused on queer desire in the wake of the AIDS crisis and its presentation in the media. With bold framing of male figures and shot in black and white, Isaac called it a Robert Maplethorpe in motion, and it set the tone for much of what follows in its dramatic visual impact and poetic approach to complex themes. His works since have been extraordinary in their breadth of subject matter and seductive visuals. Vagabondia sought the ghosts of colonialism amid the extraordinary spaces of Sir John Soane's museum. Paradise Omeros reflected on Derek Walcott's poem Omeros to explore Creolness, the mixing of cultural languages in the landscapes of St Lucia, where Isaac's parents were born, and the cityscapes of London, where he grew up, contrasting Caribbean lushness with the brutalism and brutality of urban London. Isaac's work Baltimore pictures three institutions in Maryland's capital, the Walters Art Museum, the Contemporary Museum and the Great Blacks in Wax Museum through the language of exploitation cinema, the African-American film movement of the 1970s. The nine-screen film installation 10,000 Waves from 2010 takes the tragic death of 23 Chinese immigrants in the UK to reflect on China's ancient history and shifting present. Isaac commissioned the Chinese poet Wang Ping to write Small Boats, a poem recited in the video. It's one of a number of films in which Isaac explores cultural displacement. In two recent video installations, Isaac has focused on two very different cultural figures which have allowed him to push his medium in distinctive biographical directions. In 2019's Lessons of the Hour, he explores the life and work of Frederick Douglass, the once enslaved African-American abolitionist and leading photographer of the 19th century. And in A Marvellous Entanglement, he focuses on the work and legacy of the Italian-Brazilian modernist architect and designer Lina Bobardi, shooting in her extraordinary buildings and drawing directly on her writing in meshing her social and political convictions with the marvellous spaces she created. Isaac's become one of the world's most visionary video installation artists, and I began our conversation by asking him if, even as he began his work in television and cinema, the art gallery was always his intended destination. Well, I think because I was an art student, I went to St Martin's School of Art, and studied sculpture, painting, and fine art film, I think for me it was really quite a natural development to be able to sort of think about my work as being related to art making. And I guess in a work like Looking for Langston, it becomes most obvious, a work that I made in 1989, which was a work which was both, in a way, received 
I would say, equally by the film world and the art world. And so in a sense, I've always seen the two worlds of being synonymous. And of course, they're very different worlds. And so I would say that, yes, for me, it became pivotal, I guess, once I made a film like Young's Rebels, it won a prize at Cannes. And I think it marked a kind of trajectory where you would go into feature filmmaking. But, you know, I guess, in a way, my films, which I made after that, were sort of an indication of my interests because I followed that film up with a short film called The Attendant, which was shot in the Royal Academy and the British Museum and all those sort of spaces, which I was also very interested in. And so, in a way, perhaps unknown to me at that particular time, in a prophetic sense, my journey would be much more towards that direction than I anticipated. Nonetheless, I think it was perhaps the direction I was always going to develop into. Yeah. Um, and tell me about the way that you prepare in terms of the editing of the works, because one of the consistent elements is you prepare your work in different formats. So very often it will be a single screen installation, sometimes it's three screens, sometimes it's even nine screens. So do you have to completely re-edit for each format, or, or is it all done at once, almost like working on several paintings at one time? Sort of thing? Well, of course, when I'm working on the different, if you like, versions of the film. So, for example, a work like 10,000 Ways or a work like um, Lessons of the Hour, they exist in different versions. So there's a kind of nine-screen version, in the case of 10,000 Ways, a 10-screen version in the case of Lessons of the Hour. But then I do make versions of the work where there are five-screen and single-screens, and for 10,000 Ways, there's a single-screen version which even has a different title called Better Life. Um, it premiered at the Venice Film Festival in the cinema. And I guess you could say, in a way, I'm really interested in making different works, sort of body of work, because in a way they can exist in different platforms. So, you know, they can be shown in film festivals or in community centres or in an educational setting if they're single-screen works. And if they're in multiple-screen works, they can be shown in museums and I guess you could say that is something which has been an elaboration on working with Adam Finch, who um, is my editor. We both went to St Martin's School of Art, and I guess if you look at very early work, like Territory, which is all about dub and music and the whole way in which that, as an aesthetic, um, develops into, in the musical idiom, as versions. So you'll have a version of a song... Um, you'll have a dub version of it, or you'll have a version where it's kind of um, just a form of pleasure and enjoyment that you have different versions of a work. So I think, in a way, that developed from this initial impulse. But then I think it's really just so... There's a kind of democratic aspect, you could say, in terms of being able to have a work that can be shown in different versions. And also, at the same time in terms of developing, I guess, my aesthetics in a gallery context, I've enjoyed making multiple screen works. Yeah, and they're so all-enveloping, aren't they? And I know that you've made work about Lena Bobardi. The very title of the work, Marvellous Entanglement, is about time. And it seems to me that for you, it's really crucial that the notion of time as, as experienced through the work is very much one that isn't linear and about one that challenges us to have very individual experiences with the work. Yes, I mean, in a way, um, the Lino Bardi work, A Marvelous Entanglement, which I made in um, 2019, is a work where I was able to take Lino Bardi, the Italian-Brazilian architect, who, in a way, had her various manifestos, and I was very attracted to this quite cinematic manifesto where she talks about time being a Western invention, or at least linear time is a Western invention, and she talks about time being this marvellous entanglement without beginning or end. And I think she, in a way, um, is able to appreciate the idea that thinking about time as we do today, in its multifaceted nature, we're able to experience things simultaneously. And we do that all the time, just being like on our computers you know, looking at our emails on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, whatever. But this kind of way in which time now has this sort of 
if you like, bricolage effect is really something that we take for granted in our everyday activities. And that sort of seeps into an artist's practice. So I think all I'm doing is really playing with the notion of time as a way of thinking about all the multiple levels being interpolated or being influenced as subjects or humans every day. I guess I've I've brought that sort of um, philosophy of thinking about it into my work. And of course, it's a rejection of the way that time in a more linear fashion is developed in um, more conventional films. And then in terms of the subjects, it's, it seems to me that on the one hand, there are, there are broad ranging impetuses for the different works. So that there are multiple subject matters or events, or you know, both historical and contemporary events might prompt a work. So for instance, 10,000 Waves was prompted by this horrific tragedy involving Chinese people who were cockle picking in, in northern England and died in that process. And so... On the other hand, you might refer to a poet or it might come from, uh, as you say, Lena Bobardi, an architect and their, and their philosophy. Um, I'm interested in how that process begins. When do you know that you have the kernel of the idea for a film and begin working on it? Is there a form of sketchbook or an ideas or a form of notation which prompts that? Well, I mean, if, if I take the example of 10,000 Ways, I think one of the things around that tragedy which occurred in Morecambe Bay in 2004 was really the fact that these Chinese cockershaw pickers from the Fujian province who came from such a far distance to meet these tragic ends on the Lancashire coast because of the lack of knowledge of how the tidal coast worked was something which was, in a way, generally a shock, I think, to the British public when it occurred because it exposed the sort of underlining ways in which there was a blind eye turned in the law to how migrant workers or illegal workers were, as it were, sort of working um, under these terrible conditions with the gangmasters. And so, in a sense, I think my question was really, well, they came from such a far distance. And as I did more research, um, I realised that I wanted to make a work that would somehow not just talk about the tragedy, but maybe I was looking for a sort of allegory, you know, a reason for this tragedy, so to speak. And in a way that led me, after a long time of going and reaching right into the kind of Ming period, where I discovered these tales about Mazu, who's a sea goddess. Of course, I found those in the British Museum, as one does. And that led to me sort of thinking about the different time aspects and to look at the tragedy not just from the contemporary point of view, but from Mazu's point of view. And then the journey of bringing the lost souls back to Middle Earth, back to Yellow Earth, back to China, as a kind of arc for telling the story. So it does take a long time, and I think that's because, in a way, the problem with news events is that they happen in a headline manner, and they're forgotten about the next day. And so I think if you make a work of art, um, one of the things that you have to do is to make a work that has a kind of staying power. And so 10,000 Waves was about making a work which doesn't repeat the kind of narratives that we hear every day and does something else with those stories and tragedies as a form of reparation. I mean, I think it's a long process, but I think it's about, you know, making works that can somehow stand the test of time. Let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests now. Who was the first artist whose work you loved? Well, I think growing up in the East End and I mean the museum or gallery that I used to go to when I was a teenager was a Whitechapel Art Gallery because it was in my vicinity. And um, when I started at St Martin School of Art, I remember going to see a show of Max Backman. I remember thinking that this is really such an important exhibition. It was for me when I saw it. So I think Backman is still someone that I look at in terms of his work. But suddenly it was the sort of moment where, for me, painting became alive. And I think that was an artist which I really was moved by and inspired by. And, of course, Whitechapel, 
um, art gallery played a very important role in my whole art education um, and seeing exhibitions. And I guess Beckman also is a kind, was a kind of contemporary history painter in his own period, wasn't he? A modern artist, but nonetheless documenting his time in an extraordinary way, and an ambitious way, in a kind of grand way. And I think there's a, you know, in in many ways, your work does evoke that history. It does it does tap into the history of history painting. Yes, I mean, I think there's a way in which, of course, I'm I am interested in history painting, and I think in Beckman's works, you have someone who, in a way, is involved in a kind of painterly allegorization of a political moment. And I think he's, at the same time, commenting, obviously, in his time, to the rise of Nazism and the Holocaust that would follow. And I think there's a way in which, with Beckman, that he's an artist that's responding to his time, but responding to it in a particular manner. And so, you know, that's what I found inspiring about his work. Which historical artist do you turn to the most today? Well, I guess in a way, if I think about my own work, which is perhaps a little bit not really unusual, but I mean, I I know that in my works that there seems to be a bit of return to artists like Caspar David Friedrich, which I think is interesting, you know, because I wouldn't say he's an artist that I'm always looking at, but I think it seems to be an artist that I quote quite a lot from <laughs> in my work. So if I think about a work like True North, for example, it's shot in Iceland. You have a figure, a lone figure in a space. It's in a kind of Arctic-looking space. But of course, I put an existential twist on it because it's a black subject that's in this white space. Um, but similarly, if I think about Letters of the Hour, in certain parts you have a Frederick Douglass character and so it seems to be something that I'm quoting from, perhaps consciously or unconsciously, in my work. So then I have to make the confession that perhaps, you know, that Friedrich is someone of an influence. There's also in Trust, the, a very early work of yours, there, there's a Pieta scene, effectively. And I wonder, did you have a particular Pieta in mind when you were using that image, as it were? Well, I think, yes. I mean, there are all the things that we're seeing in, like, you know, Caravaggio's or in any kind of Renaissance-type work, you know, of that period. And I didn't have a particular religious upbringing. Um, in fact, I was brought up in an atheist manner, quite contrary to that of someone who comes, as it were, from a West Indian background. But, of course... You know, maybe it's just to be termed repressed or something like that. <laughs> That's really interesting. I mean, I know that you've mentioned Piero in the connection with the film Baltimore, Piero de la Francesca. Can you tell me more about that? Because it's such an intriguing reference. Because, of course, Baltimore also references black exploitation. So there's this really interesting cultural fusion going on in that work. Well, I mean, the painting that was in um, the museum at the time was, um, I think, in the school of Piero della Francesca. And I think there's a way in which um, I was really interested in it because it was one of the first works which was, in a way, exploring perspective. And I think this idea of perspective in works like Baltimore, which is now made over nearly 20 years ago, working with the three screens, I think the question of perspective and how one's looking, the gaze, all of those things were entering into the way that I was making works and how they were challenging vision, so to speak. And so I could see a kind of connection. And so it was quite a neat one. Um, the painting um, was called An Idol City, and that was going to be the subtitle for the work, Baltimore and Idol City. But then I thought maybe perhaps that's a bit too pretentious, <laughs> um, taking the case that Baltimore was, of course, the set for that very famous US drama, that everybody spoke to me about at the time. Yeah, The Wire, right? Precisely. Yeah. Um, and unbeknown to myself, I didn't realise how dangerous it was where I was shooting and researching for that time. But I do remember Thelma Gurdon um, from the Student Museum coming up to me saying, like, well, I see, you do realise your work shot, you know, where The Wire shot? <laughs> I thought, what's The Wire? You know, <laughs> anyway. That's fascinating. Let's talk about contemporary artists. Which contemporary artists do you most admire? Well, I think, you know, a lot of my references, funnily enough, are kind of towards painting. So I'm a great admirer of Peter Doig's works, but then I've known Peter for quite some time. We went to St. Martin's School of Art with me, so in a way, 
it's almost like if I've grown up watching his works develop. And so it's really fantastic to have his works with my work in Life Between Islands with my work Paradise Omaros. And we have a mentor that we both share, Derek Walcott, who he collaborated with on a series of works, and so did I. And then I would say in terms of um, video art, um, Stan Douglas is someone that I really admire, who I think is a kind of genius and is someone who I think perhaps has not really probably got his due because I think he's, you know, as important as Bruce Narman from my point of view. Right. And so it's great that he's representing Canada um, in Venice next year. Yeah. You mentioned Douglas there, and I think one of the things that's really fascinating is that the way both of you, in your very distinctive ways are looking at film history, unpacking it a bit, but also there's a sense of, I don't know, a sense of wonder at the cinematic idiom still, even though you are filmmakers yourself. It hasn't in any way um, stripped you of the kind of, the magic of, of making film and the magic of making moving images. Yeah, I mean, I do think that sort of cinema is something which, unfortunately, if I look to the works which are being made Currently, I mean, they're not that inspiring. I mean, I guess we all look at Netflix. We all kind of, during the pandemic, had our relationship to um, watching lots of serialisations. And they got us through that terrible time. But I do think, in a way, perhaps myself and I guess my contemporaries who are involved in Moving Image, we do have this fascination with film and the possibilities of it. Um, in cinema, but of course it's migrated to this other arena. Um, and I think that's because, in a sense, the sort of possibility for really evoking the sort of magical potential of film and moving image is no longer in the cinema proper. I mean, that could change, but I think for me it's been much more exciting to develop my projects in an art world context as opposed to a film context. I don't really see a huge separation, personally, because um, I see myself as existing in both spaces. But obviously there is a big difference um, in terms of, I think, how generally those things are received culturally in society today. What do you have around you and pinned to the studio wall as you work? Well, at the moment I have a work which, in a sense, was discovered by my archivists, Manon, who found some photographs in my archive, and we realised when we got them printed, there were photographs which I took when I was a student in 1982 of a protest. Um, the protest was a, a sort of march against the murder of a young black man in a police station in Stoke Newington in 1982 called Colin Roach. And the Roach Family Support Committee was marching for an independent inquiry into finding out the circumstances surrounding the death of their son. And so these photographs were discovered in the archive and we printed them and we literally pinned them onto the wall. And so that's what you can see um, on the right here. And that made me basically go back to a work which I made when I was a student in 1983 called Hika Colin Roach. So that's a work that I I do actually currently show when I'm making exhibitions of Lessons of the Hour. And just to say it was made in 2019, so it's a year before all of the things which developed in 2020. So in a prophetic sense, it feels like it was in the air, the atmosphere of the things which developed. And, yeah, so recently we reinstalled the work here. Right. Yeah. And it, and this also a, a version of it appeared in the Royal Academy, didn't it, in a recent show? And it was it was it was right at the start of the show. And it was I had never known about this work before by you. And it was an amazing moment to walk into that show, which was in 2020, which was one of the first shows that opened in London after the lockdowns. And therefore, it was one of the first shows that opened after George Floyd's murder in London. And therefore, to be confronted with that work by you from that early stage was really quite a shock, like, you know, punch to the solar plexus, really. And it's it's such a powerful work. Can you describe it a little more? Because it's basically you took lots of photos of this protest, but it's very much a series of portraits, isn't it, as well? Yes, it is. I mean, it's a series of portraits of, you know, Mrs. Roach and um, Colin Roach's father, 
along with friends of mine who went to the protests. And what I think I was doing was really just documenting the march and the people who were, in a sense, involved in the campaign at that particular time. And I just thought it was important for it to be very direct and to, at the time when we got the prints back from Germany, we just pinged them onto the wall, you know, and that was it, you know, so. <laughs> for the listener, Isaac's just pulled back a curtain uh, from where we're sitting and we're now looking at, at these portraits as we were talking, these photographs from that work. What's it like to rediscover a work of yours like that? Because I, you must have had it in your mind, but was it sort of quite far back in your mind? Had it, or you had you been thinking about it? What prompted you to rediscover it? Well, as I said, it's more to do with how we work in the studio, that sometimes we go into the archive and when we go into the archive, we discover things in it. So that was the work that was actually f- discovered in the archive. So mm. I d- had no memory right. of taking these photographs whatsoever. Since we printed them, then I discovered that I did. And so, yeah, and I think that's one of the things which we also do in the studio because I have an archive that we work with actively and creatively And this, in a way, was something which I was able to reconstruct and to use, you know, all of the images which we found and then later on to actually also install the video work um, and to have that as a kind of, yeah, I mean, it's kind of lessons of the hour from 1983. And if we think about the work on Frederick Douglass, which is really looking at this 19th century black abolitionist, and connecting that to 1983 and how that connects to now. So, a journey across time. Precisely. This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the app for arts and culture. The app offers access to around 50 cultural institutions through a single download, with new partners being added every month. Follow Bloomberg Connects on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram and stay tuned as new digital guides are announced. The social channels also offer a sneak peek of some of the app's exclusive content. A previous guest on this podcast was Pablo Bronstein, who discussed his show at Sir John Soane's Museum in London, where, as I mentioned, Isaac shot his film Vagabondia. It's a remarkable cabinet of curiosities that was the home of the great 18th century architect John Soane. It's one of a number of house museums with digital guides on Bloomberg Connects. Others include the Benjamin Franklin House, also in London, the Louis Armstrong House Museum in Queens, New York, and then the Grand Collector's Mansions that became public institutions, like the Frick in New York, and the Wallace Collection in London. You can tour the buildings and explore their collections through diverse content, from images and video to text and audio on the app. To explore interactive guides to all the partnering institutions, download Bloomberg Connects today. You can find the app at bloombergconnects.org. It's also available to download from the App Store and Google Play. Let's talk about museums. Uh, Which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently? Well, that's a difficult question because, in a sense, I think because I live both on the West Coast and in London, usually going to museums that I wouldn't necessarily go to all the time. Because, you know, when you live in London, you take museums for granted, of course. (laughs) Um, But I guess it must be the Royal Academy because I'm a Royal Academician. But I have been going quite frequently to the Barnes Museum Mm. in Philadelphia because I've been... commissioned recently to make a work for the 100th anniversary of the Barnes Museum um, next year and so I would say that's a museum which I've gone to quite often over the last couple of years perhaps more so than any other museum but of course I mean I would say ordinarily a museum that we go to would be Tate you know that's the museum which is the flagship museum in London, so it's an obvious museum to go to often. Yeah, but you've you've made several works where you've gone to a museum and made the work inside the museum. There's Vagabondia in the Sone Museum was one of the first works I saw of yours, and it, it blew me away because it was it was a space which I was familiar with, and yet somehow completely re-enlivened on your film. Can you say about? how you negotiate a a historic space like that because you want to reinvestigate them and you have to, I guess you have to find a route into doing so. Yeah, I mean, I think perhaps the kind of how museum 
parcours in my practice has been really about looking at collections in those spaces and trying to articulate them and to reveal perhaps the hidden histories or to bring to the surface, for example, in the Sajonstone Museum, the Uncanny, which I was kind of interested in terms of Sajonstone's architecture, um, but also um, to reinvent it with the performative in the case of Vagabondia, which was, in a sense, my first museum piece along with the attendant. And then since then, you could say that when I was invited to make the piece by Museum of Art Wars, um, that's when I came across the Waters Art Gallery and the Great Blacks in Wax Museum. And I just thought it'd be wonderful to bring these two institutional archives together and what would happen, what kind of frisson could be created by bringing these two spaces, black waxworks and artworks from Renaissance together. And I guess similarly, Lina Babadi and Marvel's Entanglement was very much about the way that an architect reinvents the space um, for thinking about museum as a social space of interaction and also the way that she rewrites the kind of scenography of museum installation practice. And of course, that brings me even to the space here where we have these Lina Babadi hanging systems which we utilise in the studio for installing works. It's really fascinating. You've got, you know, it's lovely to be surrounded by it. But right behind me, I've got this display system, as you say, which is like a blue curtain, wooden posts, and these concrete bases of the posts. And then, and particularly now, we're looking at stills from Looking for Langston, which was such a seminal film in your in your work. Um, can you say something about what this display mechanism does? You know, what what why are you using it? What what is it about it that appeals to you? Well, I think um, what. Lena Babadi was doing was that she was utilising spaces for the display of artworks where she was exploring not just what we look at ordinarily but the kind of verse, what's behind the image and I think also she was really interested in stripping down the conventions of how you would install works and how would you install works without wars I think she was also interested in this kind of spatial relationship to the image and kind of breaking down the kind of um, paradigm of works on a war in a kind of bourgeois sense. And so there's a certain radicality, I think, to how she was thinking about space and the arrangement of images, which, of course, you know, was part of her, you know, whole discussion with her Italian contemporaries and also her Brazilian contemporaries. So there's a sort of language, I think, that she's developing out of modernism, which I think we probably should take a bit more notice of, which is wonderful, of course, that she got the Golden Lion in Venice this year. I think um, that's a belated recognition. I can't help but think it was perhaps prompted by my show... Um, of Lino Bardi and Marvel's Entanglement at the Maxi Museum in Rome, <laughs> where they could basically recognise that Bardi actually needs to have this recognition. You mentioned The Attendant. I wanted to ask you about that, because there's the scene in it where Stuart Hall, the great cultural theorist, is standing in front of a work which is called Slaves on the West Coast of Africa, and also with Vagabondia at the Sone. It seems to me that you, you know, obviously this was a project which... Stuart Hall talked about a lot, but you were engaged in decolonising museums a long time before it became a very prominent idea in museums today. It was something you were discussing, you know, literally 20 years ago and more. Can you tell me about that? Because it was part of that culture from which you emerged, wasn't it? Well, yes, because I think, you know, that in a way there was a whole culture which was developing in the UK and England where basically you had a really interesting conversation and I think someone like Stuart Hall was leading the discussion in terms of how to think about art practice. And that was a practice which was a very rigorous and rich discussion. It was perhaps being ignored by the art world and it took a long time for the art world to catch up to that discussion that um, Stuart Hall had initiated. But I think 
um, for me, of course, when I think about the whole decolonial move in relationship to the museum, I'm perhaps a little bit wary of that discussion because I think there is a whole pre-discussion that took place around those ideas which were basically ignored but were taken up in another context. So if I think about the curator, the late Ockwin Wierzo, we could see that those questions were taken up um, in Document 11 in um, 2002 and it took some time for it to be, in a way, developed into what it has manifested today. But I think someone like Stuart was someone who was the kind of Dion who had the kind of language for describing the experience which we were involved in. And I would say in unison we were able to really develop something of an exciting correspondence. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? Well, I think it's hard to answer the question about a cultural experience which changes the world in relationship to your own practice. I would just say that, in a way, I've always been interested in making works which would be somehow seen in an international frame. And I think that comes out of the fact that my parents were born not in England and I was interested in maybe making works that would somehow sort of move out of the national arena and that would be in dialogue with communities of the diaspora. So I think that always was a kind of important framework. But I think also the works that you make which are kind of pivotal works. So I think a work like 10,000 Ways is very sort of instrumental in terms of um, thinking about questions outside of one's own identity formation. That's not to say that making works which are connected to one's identity formation are entrapping or that you see them as being limited. But it was interesting to um, just think about those questions in a more expanded field. And I think also... Of course, I think um, there are works that you make which become pivotal works that change how you're making things. So in ways that you don't quite recognise when you're making them. You know, with hindsight, of course, you can look back on a work and you can think to yourself, well, how did I make that? Or what was the context for making them? So, of course, there's a bit of that happening when I'm thinking about works in an exhibition, Life Between Islands and... You know, thinking about making territories, for example, mm. as an art student and what is going on during that particular time. Yep, so... Yeah, I mean, I'm really interested in that period. Obviously, that, as you say, we have, we have this show in London called Life Between Islands at Tate Britain. We, it's, it's documenting British Caribbean art over the period from post-war to now. And one of the things that emerges is that is that there was a very clear not just a single movement called the black arts movement but but numerous movements within a within a broader movement in a way and you were part of the sankofa film collective there were a number of other film collectives that emerged in that time and it seems to me that there was some public support for art in that period and for for art that was exploring counter narratives in lots of ways and i wonder how how important that was that you you began making work when you did because things like the emergence of channel 4 seem to me to be really important in terms of their support for filmmaking and young filmmakers and black filmmakers for instance well yes i mean i think it's interesting to think about the works that one was making at that particular time although um works like who could colin roach and territories had nothing to do with Channel 4. No. <laughs> um, they have everything to do with being an art school student. <laughs> and I think there's a way in which, of course, um, a work like Hooker Colin Roach was very pivotal in the Sankofa Film Video Collective being funded in those early days of Channel 4 television when it was really interested in an independent cinema and video art culture and those things were being reflected in its programming in those initial days of its inception. And in a way, the Sankofa Vodia Collective was ostensibly, you know, a bunch of us who'd graduated from our respective art schools, Goldsmiths, Polytechnic of Central London, and St Martin School of Art, and formed ourselves into a collective. And that was because at that particular time, there was a really active independent film and video art culture. And we were able to receive support for 
a program of works in a workshop. But it's a completely different moment, really, culturally. Yeah. Um, very lively. London, in particular, was the centre of independent film culture in the world at that particular time. And so, in a serendipitous way, it was the coming together also of the possibility of there to be many different voices that could be sort of funded and brought together. And it was very active, unlike now. <laughs> Which writers or poets do you return to the most? Well, interestingly enough, I mean, one poet which I'm reading a lot now is Emma Cesaire, Return to My Native Land. I'm also reading a book called Lost Body, poems by Emma Cesaire and illustrations by Pablo Picasso. It's connected to my next project. Can you say any more about that or is it under wraps? (laughs) Well, it's been commissioned by the Barnes Museum and... It's about a subject which has been of much particular debate uh, around statues. Ah, how interesting. Um, Césaire is obviously a part of a sort of a broad post-war kind of culture, which has become increasingly influential. I'm, you know, a lot of artists are now referring to many of the figures that, that like Fanon, you, you were making work about a long time ago, and Edouard Glissant and others, um, poets, theorists writers who who have had a presence for a long time um, across culture but seem even more relevant than they ever have been today. Yes, I mean, I mean we made the film on France Fanon Blatskin's White Mask, which to all best intentions and purposes was a collaboration with Stuart Hall and also, to a certain extent, David A. Bailey, who created this, I thought was a fantastic exhibition um, called Enigma of Desire and... It was an exhibition that was much maligned and criticised at the time, but had people like Steve McQueen and Glenn Ligon and Renee Green. It was a kind of black conceptual art show mm-hmm. at the ICA, and it was a great exhibition. And there was a conference on France Fanon visual representation, which was really exciting, and that was, in fact, one of the reasons why the actual film was commissioned by the BBC and um, on France Fanon. And so for us, it was a, a kind of high point um, in Fanon mania. So it's really interesting to think we're in this other high point of theorists and writers which are kind of exploring these themes. And, of course, it's a, a little bit like the Return to Repress where basically you know, history haunts the present in a particular manner. And so, in a sense, the sort of renewed interests in those works are quite valuable, in a sense, and have involved us in having to do lots of work on conservation of films, which have been quite exciting and had their own demands, so to speak. I can imagine. I, I wanted to talk about Walcott, but but also in the context of that in 10,000 Waves, you based the work on a poem by Wong Ping, and like Paradise Omeros, poems were the sort of kind of starting point for both of those projects. Is that right? Yes, I mean, um, and also for Looking for Langston, yeah. so, and indeed now. And so I think poetry is a way in which you can explore themes in a less didactic manner, and they allow you the space for interpretation where you can have the possibility of having a more open relationship to themes, sometimes themes which can be quite controversial. In a way, I think they lend themselves to a possibility for exploring visually things in a more poetic manner, um, subjects which can be quite demanding or quite sometimes didactic, I think, in terms of how they treated in the dominant media or sort of in, in other art forms. Yeah, and, and it shows in your filmic language. It's a poetic filmic language, right? Yes, I mean, I guess I'm interested in a more lyrical strategy of my work. So that's not to say that one doesn't want to be also sometimes just very straightforward. I mean, I think a film like Lessons of the Hour 
is also, to a certain extent, quite clear and needs to be kind of direct as well. So, so I don't want to think about it as that my work's involved in a kind of lyricism just for the point of being lyrical. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I always ask a, a question about media as well as as well as poetry, and this might be a good moment because one of the filmmakers who had a brilliantly straightforward but also poetic language, who I'm intrigued to know if you've looked at or, or are influenced by Jean Cocteau. And I wondered, can you say, it was it, certainly in Looking for Langston, it seems to me that there are evocations of some other filmic language of Cocteau. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, we're looking at Cocteau, Blood of the Poet in particular, yeah. and there are many references in Looking for Langston to Cocteau's Blood of a Poet, including the photograph behind you where you have the kind of angels with their wide wings. They're a complete copy, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, I think this early kind of cinema, black and white cinema, because, of course, I'm looking for Langston's a black and white film. We are looking at silent cinema and film noir and, in a sense, a film culture which had disappeared, really, in relationship to the making of that work and reinvigorating it with these themes around black queer culture and, of course, juxtaposing that with poems which were quite hard-hitting during the AIDS crisis um, in the late 80s, of which, of course, a film like Look of Langston comes out of. Yeah, and, and I was intrigued to hear you say that one of the reasons that you made Looking for Langston was because you weren't taught about the Harlem Renaissance at school. You'd never heard of it. You discovered it for yourself, and you and therefore there was a sort of didactic impetus for the work. Yeah, because, I mean, in a way, I think one of the things around the Harlem Renaissance is that it is a high black modernist moment in the West, and why it wasn't sort of, in a way, taught was a problem, really, I think, in terms of thinking about canons. And it would take the sort of 90s, sort of late 90s, before the Harlem Renaissance, um, an exhibition created, of course, by David A. Bailey at the Hayward Gallery, where that would become something that would be point of focus. And in a sense, it feels there's another moment where there's a point of focus on this moment. But, you know, it's not something that is sort of made a continuity I think that's another problem that we have in terms of these movements not being taken seriously in the art world context. Let's talk about music. Which music do you listen to as you work? So recently I've been listening a lot to Furness, who is an artist who actually has another trajectory to her practice where she's a young professor of art history in Oxford University, but she has several fantastic songs, um, which I've been listening to quite often. And you're a big funk aficionado as well, aren't you? Well, yeah, of course. I mean, because Young Rebels is completely my formation in relationship to thinking about soul music and the kind of black soul movements and white soul movement culture that was developed in London and in England in the 70s. So it's my formation, and in a sense I see those movements as being the spaces which in a way produced the coming together and remaking of British culture as we know it today. If you could live with one work of art, what would it be? Well, in a way, I'm I'm very lucky that I actually have a work of art by Glenn Ligon. Um, I have a couple of works by Glenn Ligon, and I live with that work every day. So he's got an amazing exhibition on at the moment in Housing Worth in New York, which I saw recently, and I also saw his work in Zurich as well. Yeah, and yeah, so I think he's one of the most important artists working today. And so, in that sense, incredibly lucky to be able to live with an, an artist's work, which I greatly admire. He told me that one of the first times he came to London, 
he went to a dinner and, and you and Mark Nash were there and uh, he couldn't believe that Stuart Hall was there. He didn't think it would be possible to have, have dinner with somebody as important as Stuart Hall. And I love that story that he'd, you know, he'd read Stuart Hall, absorbed it, he'd become a hero and there he was when he first came to London. It's a nice story. Yeah, I think I organised that dinner. <laughs> yeah. But he's, uh, he's, he's great, Glenn. I urge people who are listening to listen to the, the podcast interview with Glenn. He's great. And lastly, what's art for? Communication. It's that simple. Isaac, thank you so much. Thank you. Isaac Julian's Lena Bobardi, A Marvellous Entanglement, is at the Beschler Museum of Modern Art in Charlotte, North Carolina, until the 27th of February 2022. Frequencies and Paradise Omeros feature in Life Between Islands, Caribbean British Art 1950s to Now at Tate Britain in London until the 3rd of April. Two of Isaac's photographs feature in Black American Portraits at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art until the 17th of April. His work The Leopard features in Family, A View From Here at the Art Gallery of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia, until the 13th of February. Lessons of the Hour is in Social Work 2 at Gagosian Grosvenor Hill in London until the 18th of December this year and a version of the same work is at the Smith College Museum of Art in Northampton, Massachusetts until the 10th of July next year. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And do also subscribe to our other podcast, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues every Friday. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producers of the Art Newspaper Podcasts are Judy Mahouska and Amy Dawson. Thanks to Henrietta Bentel, Daniela Hathaway and Kabir Jalla. A huge thanks to Isaac Julian. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.